Section 13 of Jean Christophe, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Joshua Seeger in Chicago. Jean Christophe, Volume 1, by Romain Roland. Translated by Gilbert Canaan. Morning 1, Part 3. Soon that was not enough for him. He sold the things that he had inherited from his father. Jean Christophe sadly saw the precious relics go. The books, the bed, the furniture, the portraits of musicians. He could say nothing. But one day, when Melchior had crashed into Jean-Michel's old piano, he swore as he rubbed his knee, and said that there was no longer room to move about in his own house, and that he would rid the house of all such gimcrackery. Jean-Christophe cried aloud. It was true that the rooms were too full, since all Jean-Michel's belongings were crowded into them, so as to be able to sell the house, that dear house in which Jean-Christophe had spent the happiest hours of his childhood. It was true also that the old piano was not worth much, that it was husky in tone, and that for a long time Jean-Christophe had not used it, since he played on the fine new piano due to the generosity of the prince. But however old and useless it might be, it was Jean-Christophe's best friend. It had awakened the child to the boundless world of music. On its worn yellow keys he had discovered with his fingers the kingdom of sounds and its laws. It had been his grandfather's work. Months had gone to repairing it for his grandson, and he was proud of it. It was, in some sort, a holy relic, and Jean Christophe protested that his father had no right to sell it. Melchior bade him be silent. Jean Christophe cried louder than ever that the piano was his, and that he forbade anyone to touch it. But Melchior looked at him with an evil smile, and said nothing. Next day Jean Christophe had forgotten the affair. He came home tired, but in a fairly good temper. He was struck by the sly looks of his brothers. They pretended to be absorbed in their books. But they followed him with their eyes, and watched all his movements, and bent over their books again when he looked at them. He had no doubt that they had played some trick upon him, but he was used to that, and did not worry about it, but determined, when he had found it out, to give them a good thrashing, as he always did on such occasions. He scorned to look into the matter, and he began to talk to his father, who was sitting by the fire, and questioned him as to the doings of the day with an affectation of interest which suited him but ill. And while he talked, he saw that Melchior was exchanging stealthy nods and winks with the two children. Something caught at his heart. He ran into his room. The place where the piano had stood was empty. He gave a cry of anguish. In the next room he heard the stifled laughter of his brothers. The blood rushed to his face. He rushed into them and cried, "'My piano!' Melchior raised his head with an air of calm bewilderment, which made the children roar with laughter. He could not contain himself when he saw Jean-Christophe's piteous look, and he turned aside to guffaw. Jean-Christophe no longer knew what he was doing. He hurled himself like a mad thing on his father. Melchior, lolling in his chair, had no time to protect himself. 
The boy seized him by the throat and cried, Thief! Thief! It was only for a moment. Melchior shook himself and sent Jean Christophe rolling down onto the tile floor, though in his fury he was clinging to him like grim death. The boy's head crashed against the tiles. Jean Christophe got upon his knees. He was livid, and he went on saying in a choking voice, Thief! Thief! You are robbing us, mother and me! Thief! You are selling my grandfather! Melchior rose to his feet and held his fist above Jean Christophe's head. The boy stared at him with hate in his eyes. He was trembling with rage. Melchior began to tremble too. He sat down and hid his face in his hands. The two children had run away screaming. Silence followed the uproar. Melchior groaned and mumbled. Jean Christophe, against the wall, never ceased glaring at him with clenched teeth, and he trembled in every limb. Melchior began to blame himself. I am a thief. I rob my family. My children despise me. It were better if I were dead. When he had finished whining, Jean Christophe did not budge, but asked him harshly, Where is the piano? At Wurmser's, said Melchior, not daring to look at him. Jean Christophe took a step forward and said, The money. Melchior crushed, took the money from his pocket, and gave it to his son. Jean Christophe turned towards the door. Melchior called him. Jean Christophe! Jean Christophe stopped. Melchior went on in a quavering voice. Dear Jean Christophe, do not despise me. Jean Christophe flung his arms round his neck and sobbed. No, father, dear father, I do not despise you. I am so unhappy. They wept loudly. Melchior lamented. It is not my fault. I am not bad. That's true, Jean Christophe. I am not bad. He promised that he would drink no more. Jean Christophe wagged his head doubtfully, and Melchior admitted that he could not resist it when he had money in his hands. Jean Christophe thought for a moment and said, You see, father, we must. He stopped. What then? I am ashamed. Of whom? asked Melchior naively. Of you. Melchior made a face and said, That's nothing. Jean Christophe explained that they would have to put all the family money, even Melchior's contribution, into the hands of someone else, who would dole it out to Melchior day by day or week by week as he needed it. Melchior, who was in humble mood, he was not altogether starving, agreed to the proposition, and declared that he would then and there write a letter to the Grand Duke to ask that the pension which came to him should be regularly paid over in his name to Jean Christophe. Jean Christophe refused, blushing for his father's humiliation, but Melchior, thirsting for self-sacrifice, insisted on writing. He was much moved by his own magnanimity. Jean Christophe refused to take the letter, and when Louisa came in and was acquainted with the turn of events, she declared that she would rather beg in the streets than expose her husband to such an insult. She added that she had every confidence in him, and that she was sure he would make amends out of love for the children and herself. In the end, there was a scene of tender reconciliation, and Melchior's letter was left on the table, and then fell under the cupboard, where it remained concealed. 
But a few days later, when she was cleaning up, Louisa found it there, and as she was very unhappy about Melchior's fresh outbreaks, he had forgotten all about it, instead of tearing it up, she kept it. She kept it for several months, always rejecting the idea of making use of it, in spite of the suffering she had to endure. But one day, when she saw Melchior once more beating Jean Christophe and robbing him of his money, she could bear it no longer, and when she was left alone with the boy, who was weeping, she went and fetched the letter, and gave it him, and said, Go. Jean Christophe hesitated, but he understood that there was no other way if they wished to save from the wreck the little that was left to them. He went to the palace. He took nearly an hour to walk a distance that ordinarily took twenty minutes. He was overwhelmed by the shame of what he was doing. His pride, which had grown great in the years of sorrow and isolation, bled at the thought of publicly confessing his father's vice. He knew perfectly well that it was known to everybody, but by a strange and natural inconsequence he would not admit it, and pretended to notice nothing, and he would rather have been hewn in pieces than agree. And now, of his own accord, he was going. Twenty times he was on the point of turning back. He walked two or three times round the town, turning away just as he came near the palace. He was not alone in his plight. His mother and brothers had also to be considered. Since his father had deserted them and betrayed them, it was his business as eldest son to take his place and come to their assistance. There was no room for hesitation or pride. He had to swallow down his shame. He entered the palace. On the staircase he almost turned and fled. He knelt down on a step. He stayed for several minutes on the landing, with his hand on the door, until someone coming made him go in. Everyone in the offices knew him. He asked to see His Excellency the director of the theatres, Baron de Hammer Langbach. A young clerk, sleek, bald, pink-faced, with a white waistcoat and a pink tie, shook his hand familiarly, and began to talk about the opera of the night before. Jean Christophe repeated his question. The clerk replied that His Excellency was busy for the moment, but that if Jean Christophe had a request to make, they could present it with other documents which were to be sent in for His Excellency's signature. Jean Christophe held out his letter. The clerk read it and gave a cry of surprise. Oh, indeed, he said brightly. That is a good idea. He ought to have thought of that long ago. He never did anything better in his life. Ah, the old sot! How the devil did he bring himself to do it? He stopped short. Jean Christophe had snatched the paper out of his hands, and, white with rage, shouted, "'I forbid you! I forbid you to insult me!' The clerk was staggered. "'But, my dear Jean Christophe,' he began to say, "'who ever thought of insulting you? I only said what everybody thinks, and what you think yourself.' "'No!' cried Jean Christophe angrily. "'What? You don't think so? You don't think that he drinks?' "'It is not true!' said Jean Christophe. He stamped his foot. The clerk shrugged his shoulders. In that case, why did he write this letter? Because, said Jean Christophe, he did not know what to say, because when I come for my wages every month, I prefer to take my father's at the same time. It is no good our both putting ourselves out. 
my father is very busy. He reddened at the absurdity of his explanation. The clerk looked at him with pity and irony in his eyes. Jean-Christophe crumpled the paper in his hands and turned to go. The clerk got up and took him by the arm. Wait a moment, he said. I'll go and fix it up for you. He went into the director's office. Jean-Christophe waited with the eyes of the other clerks upon him. His blood boiled. He did not know what he was doing, what to do, or what he ought to do. He thought of going away before the answer was brought to him, and he had just made up his mind to that when the door opened. "'His Excellency will see you,' said the too obliging clerk. Jean-Christophe had to go in. "'His Excellency Baron de Hammer Langbach, a little neat old man with whiskers, moustaches, and a shaven chin, looked at Jean-Christophe over his golden spectacles without stopping writing, nor did he give any response to the boy's awkward bow. "'So,' he said after a moment, "'you are asking, Herr Kraft?' "'Your Excellency,' said Jean-Christophe hurriedly, "'I ask your pardon. I have thought better of it. I have nothing to ask.' The old man sought no explanation for this sudden reconsideration. He looked more closely at Jean-Christophe, coughed, and said, "'Hercraft, will you give me the letter that is in your hand?' Jean-Christophe saw that the director's gaze was fixed on the paper, which he was still unconsciously holding, crumpled up in his hand. "'It is no use, Your Excellency,' he murmured. "'It is not worth while now.' "'Please give it me,' said the old man quietly, as though he had not heard." Mechanically, Jean-Christophe gave him the crumpled letter, but he plunged into a torrent of stuttered words while he held out his hand for the letter. His Excellency carefully smoothed out the paper, read it, looked at Jean-Christophe, let him flounder about with his explanations, then checked him, and said with a malicious light in his eyes, "'Very well, Hercraft. The request is granted.' He dismissed him, with a wave of his hand, and went on with his writing. Jean-Christophe went out, crushed. "'No offence, Jean-Christophe,' said the clerk kindly, when the boy came into the office again. Jean-Christophe let him shake his hand without daring to raise his eyes. He found himself outside the palace. He was cold with shame. Everything that had been said to him recurred in his memory and he imagined that there was an insulting irony in the pity of the people who honored and were sorry for him. He went home, and answered only with a few irritable words Louise's questions, as though he bore a grudge against her for what he had just done. He was racked by remorse when he thought of his father. He wanted to confess everything to him, and to beg his pardon. Melchior was not there. Jean-Christophe kept awake far into the night, waiting for him, the more he thought of him, the more his remorse quickened. He idealized him. He thought of him as weak, kind, unhappy, betrayed by his own family. As soon as he heard his step on the stairs, he leaped from his bed to go and meet him and throw himself in his arms. But Melchior was in such a disgusting state of intoxication that Jean-Christophe had not even the courage to go near him. And he went to bed again laughing bitterly at his own illusions. When Melchior learned a few days later of what had happened, he was in a towering passion, and in spite of all Jean-Christophe's entreaties, he went and made a scene at the palace. But he returned with his tail between his legs. 
and breathed not a word of what had happened. He had been very badly received. He had been told that he would have to take a very different tone about the matter, that the pension had only been continued out of consideration for the worth of his son, and that if in the future there came any scandal concerning him to their ears, it would be suppressed. And so Jean-Christophe was much surprised and comforted to see his father accept his living from day to day, and even boast about having taken the initiative in the sacrifice. But that did not keep Melchior from complaining outside that he had been robbed by his wife and children, that he had put himself out for them all his life, and that now they let him want for everything. He tried also to extract money from Jean-Christophe by all sorts of ingenious tricks and devices, which often used to make Jean-Christophe laugh, although he was hardly ever taken in by them. But as Jean-Christophe held firm, Melchior did not insist. He was curiously intimidated by the severity in the eyes of this boy of fourteen who judged him. He used to avenge himself by some stealthy, dirty trick. He used to go to the cabaret and eat and drink as much as he pleased, and then pay nothing, pretending that his son would pay his debts. Jean-Christophe did not protest, for fear of increasing the scandal and he and Louisa exhausted their resources in discharging Melchior's debts. In the end, Melchior more and more lost interest in his work as violinist, since he no longer received his wages, and his absence from the theatre became so frequent that, in spite of Jean-Christophe's entreaties, they had to dismiss him. The boy was left to support his father, his brothers, and the whole household. So, at fourteen... Jean-Christophe became the head of the family. End of section 13